0: Show you a better way. You Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 2nd, 2016, and this is episode 1777 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's also, again, May. First first show of May, second day of May, and you know what that means? Another month is gone, bam, like that. It's just disappeared, tick tock into the annals of time. Are you working on personal liberty and independence? Remember, there's 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 no static in life. You're either moving toward greater personal liberty and independence, or the system is moving you toward greater tyranny in your own life. But these are your only choices. But it really is. I I hate to bring it to you that way, but we all need a reminder once in a while, and as another month of 2016 2016 passes by, make sure you're working for freedom and liberty. And We're going to try to help you with that today, mentally, physically, in all ways. I've got a lot of stuff to talk to you about today. Number one, i got a real world story and warning about why you need to be prepared to evacuate from someone who's in that exact situation up in Canada right now. I also have more on uh, the libertarian nation attempting to be being founded in Croatia, more of a a generic question like how could others help a nation like that actually get the funding it needs to establish itself in such a way that it's not easy for it to be removed. Uh, Next up, I, I come down on cops all the time when they do their jobs poorly, when they harm citizens, when they forget their oath, when they don't do what they're supposed to do. So it's only right that when a cop does that, But his fellow officers take it on their shoulders to fix things and to make it right that I recognize those officers for doing the right thing, and we're going to be able to do that today. Next up, long ago I made a prediction that there would be a strong man in the presidency in 2016. Is Donald Trump that strong man? We're going to take it back with a listener that sent in a quote, an exact quote of exactly what I said over two years ago. And we're going to analyze the way this thing's shaping up. And maybe Trump is that strong, man. You know, I don't get real involved with politics. That's, that's just the way I am, but I do observe because it does affect. Uh, next, you know, we hear all the stuff about roads, right? The government, without government, who would build the roads? Is the government really doing a good job building roads and maintaining roads and fixing roads if we compared it to, I don't know, the 1920s and 30s when government was far smaller? How long does it take government to do a job today compared to what it took them to do that same job in, you know, 1930? We'll take a look at that today with one quick example of just that. And the shit has hit the fan in Venezuela. I'm sure you've heard about all the types of things is that, that, that government's basically imploding and that economy's imploding down there. Uh, didn't quite work out in the socialist nirvana way that they planned, but now there's a real problem. A serious one. I'll tell you what it is in today's show. An update on my self-watering containers. A lot of folks have asked about those, especially people that were here when we built them. These are tank gardens that are built in uh, stock tanks. I'll tell you how they're doing, and I'll tell you about a video you can take a look at and see how they're doing. Uh, though they they look a lot better now than they did even a week ago. They really are banging. Um, also, I'm going to give you a hard lesson we learned recently with our quail. Um, involving a toxic plant that I have never seen any poultry consume. Uh, It's been on my property here and there. I usually do yank it out because it is toxic. It's called horse nettle. Um, But some of it popped up in the aviary, and we had some problems, including losing some birds before we figured out what was going on. And uh, I'll tell you why it's something you need to be concerned with, with poultry and specifically with quail. Uh, I'll also give you a recommendation on a good gas grill. Um, I don't think anybody will be surprised that I'm going to come down on, let's say, Weber's. They're expensive, but they're only expensive once. But I'll tell you why I believe they're the best gas grill that you can get out there and why they're the one that you want to buy because you can buy it once. You can buy it once and maybe replace some parts once in a while. Uh, also, as many know, Harriet Tubman is coming to the $20 bill. They're going to change the money, I think, by 19 or 19. By 2020, they're going to change the 20 and uh, it's a political statement. But a listener asks a question that says, hey, could there be something else at play here? I'm going to talk about that and why I think he's on the right track but not quite on the right track. Like he started out on the right track and then fell off the road. But there is a reason they change the money so frequently. Have you noticed how often they change the money? I'm talking about the printed money, the, the, the cash. I'll tell you why they do that in just a bit. Also, when does it make sense to get a tax attorney and a CPA when you're in business? You know, I get a lot of these questions about corporate formations and stuff like that. And when they're technical, I always say tax attorney, CPA. Do not ask me. I can't tell you your unique situation, the state you're doing business in, etc. You need a tax attorney and CPA. Well, if you're doing like a business that's done doing 1500 bucks a year, is it worth it? Probably not. So when do we make that decision? And do we treat them the same, CPA and tax attorney? I say no. I say no. CPA is worth their weight in gold even if you don't have a business um, when you have the right situation. So we'll talk about that because keeping money in our pockets, guys, that's what it's all about. If we're going to work toward liberty, something has to fund that. And I'm going to wrap up the show with a question on anarchy and public lands. If we had a stateless society, would there be public lands or something analogous to public lands? We kind of touched on this with Rhodes last week, but I think you'll like this one. Also, I'll be recording several of these segments in video and be popping them up on YouTube from my iPhone. So those of you that want to share individual segments, I think that will be uh, useful to you. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday. Five days a week. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. Check out Safecastle.com today to learn more. Hey, if if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. And with that, before we get to all your great questions on a listener feedback show, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1777, because the episode is 1777. We're in the midst of the revolution now. And I have for you the Articles of Confederation in the United States of America. I have Washington Switches to a Fabian Strategy. And I have Turn, 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 Spies in Review. Um, I'm going to start out with Turn, 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 Spies in Review because I have an interesting take on that. And we'll see what else I can fit in in the allotted time. There is a spy in the midst of Washington's camp. He is probably an officer. Next, people speculate that the wife of British General Gage is a spy for the revolution. Probably not. Nathan Hale was hung for as a spy last year. Quote, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country, end quote. Benedict Arnold is not yet a spy, but he is passed over for promotion, and he resents it. A lot. So it begins. Next year, Washington will form a Culper Ring. Colonel Benjamin Talmadge will lead it. This year he meets a woman, a spy, in a tavern. The British are on them and they barely escape with their lives as he lifts her onto his horse and gallops away with her. She has nerves of steel. Quote, during the whole ride, although there was considerable firing of pistols pistols, and not a little wheeling and charging, she remained unmoved. She never once complained for fear after she mounted my horse. So that was a real life, you know, type of thing you see in a movie, huh? Um, Here's my take on the whole thing with spies. If you are in conflict with an enemy, not only are spies valuable for the information that they can gather, but your enemy's fear that spies are amidst can actually be used to disable your enemy. Imagine you had an enemy where you don't have actually a single spy on the inside. Would it not still be valuable to create the illusion that you did, so they start questioning each other's loyalties? It is a type of tactical mental warfare that many people don't consider. I'm going to go ahead and read the Articles of Confederation in the United States of America, because this is important. It's our first real government. Last year, when the Continental Congress appointed a committee to draft the Declaration of Independence, another committee was assigned to the Articles of Confederation. The Articles are a set of rules under which the former colonies of the British Empire will join in mutual defense against Great Britain for the purpose of securing independence from the British monarchy and to make sure that no other monarchy is installed in its place. The name of this new government entity shall be the United States of America, and it may seem ridiculous that the Continental Congress would wait until this year to send out the approved draft for ratification by the states. After all, the shot heard around the world at Concord was two years prior, but every endeavor has its process. The articles will not be ratified until 1781, but there are de facto rules for the government for now. It defines a very weak government, so it will be replaced by the United States Constitution in 1788. I'm not going to read all of Alex Rugg's take because it'll get long. But I want to read his final statement here, and Alex puts these together for us at TSB Wiki. I've come to realize that there is no constitution that one could devise that could keep the balance, the, balance the power to tax and the power to be left alone. It takes constant vigilance to maintain the balance. A single document cannot do it without people supporting it and watching it with an eagle eye. And I think there's people that say we should go back to the Articles of Confederation or something more like that than our current constitution because it gives too much power to the federal government. But Alex's take is correct in that people have allowed the federal government to take this power. There was not required that it be done. People could have put a check on this power at any time. But why? Why do they allow it? Because as I've told you many times, it's not people choosing security and safety above liberty, but people choosing comfort above liberty. People want to be comfortable. And it's more comfortable to believe the fairy tale the people in government are good guys and doing their best and really trying to take care of you, and even worse, that they can get it done. My personal feeling, though, is you could have a document that limited government's power to tax if any government saw fit to actually implement that. For instance, at the federal level, you could simply have a uh, amendment to our current Constitution that denied the federal government the ability to tax anything except the sales of goods and services at, and, and put a cap on it and put a cap on in an amendment that's limited, and it would require a second amendment to lift the cap on what the percentage could be. That would be one way you could do it. And then the government could only get more money by making the economy better, but that could lead to its own disaster. You see, every time I start thinking about how to fix government, I start thinking that the best way to fix government is to replace it, to render it obsolete, and to exit it. And there's a reason. It's called critical thinking, my take by Jack Spearco. All right, so with that knocked out, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first bit of feedback for today's show. And I have, again, a real-world story about someone that's having to bug out right now. And um, it's it's, it's not like a, a horrible thing just yet, but it does put things into perspective. So this guy's name is James. Um, from northern Alberta, Canada. So we just got evac'd out of our home due to an encroaching fire. Our community has one main highway running north to south. The north section just above town has been closed due to a wildfire. The southern section where we live is moving close to the highway, threatening to lock the residents in town. I've been warning locals for a while to be prepared for this eventuality of evacuation and potential for disaster. It happened to a, t- a town called Slave Lake a few years ago, and it was a real possibility here. My wife and I are volunteers for local search and rescue. She grabbed our documents and headed south before the highway closed. I'm staying local in case our group has called up for assistance with disaster response. I'm including a link to the news so you can see this isn't a tall tale, and I'll put a link to that on cbc.ca. Uh, in today's show notes thank you for reminding encouraging and spreading the good world that this can happen and plans need to be made that can ha- it can happen to anyone get ready yeah i agree and I think it's something that like this is what people miss when they say well my plan is to bug in okay you're gonna bug in during a wildfire right you're gonna i mean some of you that live in a certain places you're gonna bug in during a pr- prospective volcanic eruption uh you're gonna bug in during flooding when your house is underwater do you know that we just had um, very, very unfortunately, the loss of a grandmother and I think four or five children, uh, several were her grandchildren. I think one was like staying with them or visiting them, uh, in a flood out in, uh, Palestine, Texas, sleeping in their home and floodwaters killed them. You get a bug in while your house is being flooded. This is, this is not a good plan. And I think the reason that you get this mentality is because of the concept of the 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 you know the, the bug out mentality that I'm going to go off like Red Dawn and fight the, the blue helmets when they come try to put us in uh, FEMA camps or some crap like that. It's a natural reaction, but like most reactionary things rather than pro-actionary things, it overreaches, right? So we go from, well, you know, bugging out isn't maybe all it's cracked up to be, and there's a lot of good reasons to bug in, to, oh, you never bug out, you just bug in. All your stuff's at home. All your comfort items at home. Why would you ever bug out? Because you have a wildfire? uh, Because it's a mandatory evacuation and they told you you have to? Because if you don't, you could end up trapped inside the disaster and not be able to get out while your house burns down with you in it? I mean, these are basic things. And I think that people have this unrealistic sense of security. Well, that could happen there, but not here. Oh, fire doesn't burn where you live? Floodwaters don't rise where you live? I mean, honestly, sure, you're more likely to have problems from a tropical storm or a hurricane in Florida than you are to have one like that in Ohio. And you're more likely to have problems with an ice storm in Ohio than Florida. But there's always something. And it just reinforces the reality, guys. Reinforces it. That there is no such thing as a really safe place. There's always something that can happen. We always need to be prepared. And we don't prepare for events. We prepare to deal without systems of support. On that note, I want to let you know I did a post today on the blog because I mentioned these uh, cables that I use uh, for my iPhone. And uh, I forgot to put a link in them last week when I mentioned them. And I have cables, too, that I recommend for people with Android phones. Keeping your phone charged in situations like this is one of the most critical ways you can remain the ability to communicate with people and to gather information. Yes, you could have cell towers taken out and things like that, but as long as you're able to move around, you can usually find some place where things are still up. And, you know, it's better to have a cell phone that's charged and at least have the information available on its basic hard drive than it is to have a cell phone that's dead. And when you do get to where there's a signal, have that ability. And, you know, you can do things. A lot of times when cell traffic doesn't work, and I guess we shouldn't call it that way, voice traffic doesn't work, you can still get text messages out. Or you can set up a text message to send, and as soon as the phone sees signal, it will send it. So it's a critical, critical link, especially in a bug-out scenario, especially in the scenario that we have here from from James, where his wife is gone and he's still at home. Uh, And they want to be able to communicate with each other and know what's going on. So... Um My problem with the lightning cable, when Apple came out with those, it, even though I do believe it was an improvement over the old-style connector, it has the same problem. They're not very well reinforced um, right where the cable meets the connector. And they often break down there, and they wear out. And then just over time, those lightning connectors, no matter where you get them from, the little uh, connectors on them tend to wear out. So, I went out and found this cable, and it's called the iSelector Nylon Braided uh, Lightning Charging Cable. They're 19 bucks, or I'm sorry, they're, uh, they're 25 bucks for a three pack. Okay? That's 8 bucks and 30 cents a piece, and they're on Prime on Amazon, and I, I recommend you have those. Those of you that have Android and Samsungs and stuff like that, um, you guys use a micro USB cable for your, like, it's your standard form factor for a lot of devices other than proprietary iPhones. I found one, this is made by iSeeker, it's a nylon braided uh, micro USB cable. I have these as well, I have them in, in my bug out bag, I have them in my vehicle, I have them in my charging station for friends that come over that don't have iPhones. Um, I haven't used them as much as the ones for the iPhone, obviously, because I, I don't have a device that really needs them, uh, but they seem just as rugged. Aluminum connectors, heavily reinforced, nylon braided. The ones for the iPhone, I took them when I got them to test one, and I cleared off my desk, which is a, a thing for me to do. It's tough. It's a cluttered desk. And I took it and I kind of bent it in half, so I was holding the connector sides in my hand. And I whipped the top of the desk, you know, uh, like five times pretty hard. And the cable looked fine. I plugged it in. It worked. Um, to me, that's what I'm looking for out of a cable. And they're both very, very well built. So I recommend you add those for when you are bugging out. And You can take a look at my article and uh, find them on Amazon from there. So our next question comes in from Sean, and, um, Sean says, this is a follow-up to your discussion in episode 1772 when you talked about a group trying to form up in an unclaimed island between Serbia and Croatia. Uh, Croatia. Just to be clear, that, unc- that, that island is not like an island in the middle of the water. It's an island as it's a, a piece of land between two nations that nobody really wants to claim. It's about seven kilometers squared, I believe. Um, He says, given how money is so influential, one, how do you believe that liberty-minded people could use their investments to influence a smaller country? For instance, rewarding Serbia for recognizing the group. Two, what do you think of a website that researched and published such information as to who to invest with and why? Not for financial benefit, but for societal benefit. Three, how difficult to organize an influential would an investment fund be? For such an activity background, I know little about such investments, but would like to help. And I'm trying to que- for a question hat trick. By the way, such a similar idea could help free state New Hampshire, uh, Sean and Tally. Uh, I guess that's Tallahassee. Um, so here's my way of looking at this it's, it's not so much like, you know, you create a mutual fund for, uh, Liber, libertos or whatever they 're calling this place, Libertos was a virtual nation I came up with i can 't remember the name of uh, this place uh, exactly, um, but it 's a liberty it 's something liberty and it 's this little tiny piece of land that 's been left between Serbia and Croatia, and this gentleman and some backers have basically claimed it, even though they physically aren 't in it yet, and they plan on possibly this summer bringing in like five to ten thousand people and forcibly taking over this this vacant piece of land. And then saying basically there's no way the police are going to move 10,000 people out of there and then setting up and going. So would it make sense then for people to gather together capital and say to a nation like Serbia, Hey, if you guys or Croatia, Hey, if you guys like, you know, diplomatically recognize this and let this happen, there's something in it for you. I don't know. When you're trying to influence a nation, um, it's kind of above the pay grade of people at, our level in general, you're talking about billionaires, and then money-influencing nations tends to lead to bad things, doesn't it? So I'm not so sure we would go that way. What do you think of a website that researches and publishes such information as to who to invest with and why, not for financial benefit, but for societal benefit? Well, I think that that is an interesting idea, but I think that that's an idea really um, more and more moving toward the concept of cryptocurrencies, and virtual nations. And I think that's really the way that needs to be taken. That can't be done with dollars or, or yen or, you know, pound sterling or euros because that's, that's the enemy's means of, of control. So as long as you're doing business in their money, you're doing business on their terms and you're subject to their manipulations. So I think the derivatives of Bitcoin and the ability to create currencies that are for specific things. And the ability to use blockchain-like technology or blockchain technology itself for voting rights, for shareholder rights, for things like that, uh, are, are doing far more and will do far more to create freedom than money. But having a website that basically went with some sort of trust indicator that individuals, that nations, that companies had certain trust and uh, were supporters of liberty might be a good idea. How difficult to organize an an influential would an investment fund need to be for such an activity it 'd be very very difficult because you 're asking people to put up a lot of money for it to be useful and then well who 's in control of it how 's it going to work? who gets to decide um, what do you get I mean I know you said it 's for society 's benefit, but if you don 't get the benefits you 're looking for for society, then you didn 't get the benefits you invested for. So how do we, how do we work all this out to where we get to a situation that actually would, would function? So instead of answering your question directly, I want to look at it more from a standpoint of, well, what could we do, um, to have a nation like this become successful again? So what could this nation, this little island between Serbia and Croatia do to become successful? Well, I think, they're they're already talking about a strategic alliance with something called BitNation, uh, bitnation.co, B-I-T-N-A-T-I-O-N dot C-O. And BitNation is laying the groundwork for virtual nations so that you can have conflict resolution, so that you can have education, so that you can have uh, contracts. So you can take all these things that governments normally do and put them into a format where they're actually – you know controlled by the the parties that are involved and we can then develop a trust rated system so that you know you can trust someone because they've done business with hundreds of other people and always kept their word and you know that a conflict resolution service works well because it has good ratings by people that won and lost in the conflict in fact you know conflict resolutions done resolutions done right when the parties have the conflict resolved and both few people feel like, well, I got something decent out of that. That was a good experience. And I understand now why this person had a conflict with me in the first place. And we did the best we could. And they both feel like they got satisfaction. That's actually conflict. That's not what happens in a court of law. So I think that the website should actually be enabling that type of thing, regardless of where you're geographically located. And that's the virtual nation concept in a nutshell. However, if these folks actually pull off claiming this piece of ground and are actually able through things like the United Nations to gain political recognition as an actual nation, it lends them a credibility that that they would not normally have, and it lends any, you know, like it's like Estonia's e-citizenship is I think the way they would go. And my thought is what they should do is they should actually sell citizenship and they should develop this cloud nation with a home base, a physical home base, and actually issue passports so that you have kind of the best of both worlds. You have a citizenship of a sovereign nation. Whether you live there or not doesn't matter. They can decide what it takes to become a citizen of their nation. They can decide how often you actually have to step foot there, and that answer could be you don't ever have to step foot there. In fact, it would be really smart for them to take that approach. And I think what would happen is there would be so many people That would want to become citizens, if you made the process easy, that money would pour in. And then you take that group of people and you get them doing business with each other through your nation. And you shelter them from other nations in those business activities. Say, these are our citizens doing our business our way. And no, you don't get to see what they're doing, it's none of your business. And you charge fees for different services. Now, these aren't taxes, because this place is not supposed to have taxes, but they're voluntary services that the nation could offer. And, of course, they could be competed with. This makes sense. This is not a perfect stateless society, but it is pushing the interactive edge with the state further and further away from the state's control. I think it's an interesting idea. That's the approach I would take. And I'll include links in the show notes uh, and the video notes, because this one's on video as well, where you can learn more about this nation again. I can't re- Liberland, that's what it's called. Li- they just came to me. Uh, this nation, Liberland, and their plans for basically a, as they're phrasing it, a, a physical hostile takeover. And I'll see if I can look up some stuff for you, too, on the strategic alliance between BitNation and uh, Liberland, because I think that really makes things more exciting. So I believe that the way forward for virtual nations, voluntarist nations, is to build collective um, wealth, to build purchasing power, to build production power, to build something that other people want something from. They want a piece of it, a part of it. And actually then you can actually form um, business relationships with other nations as well, other actual physical nations and um if it leads humanity toward greater freedom then i'm all for it will it work i don't know some version thereof will that's what i'm confident of like any technology um you also you often have multiple iterations of it and some of them always do fail and some of them generally succeed so with that let's take another one so uh this next story for today's podcast uh comes to me from chris Says says, uh, Jack, a great Leo story from the Marcus, Marxist state of Maryland. State trooper charged with assaulting arrest April 27, 2016. Uh, here's the basics of the story. A Maryland state trooper has been arrested f- subsequent to a grand jury indictment charging him with assault on a man being arrested following a pursuit on I-95 in Hartford County last fall. The trooper is identified as Trooper Martin M. Dunlap, 25. He's charged with one count of first-degree assault, three counts of second-degree assault, and two counts of misconduct in office. Dunlap was indicted yesterday by Hartford County Grand Jury after investigative information was presented by Hartford County State's Attorney's Office. Dunlap turned himself in to state police investigators at Bel Air Barrack just before 1 p.m. today after processing. and He had initial appearance before the court. Commissioner it was released on $1,000 in bond. The victim of the assault is identified as Dennis M. D. Donahue, 55, Riverdale, Maryland. Donahue was a driver and sole occupant of a Chevy Captiva that fled from Dunlap and other troopers attempting to stop it on 995 about 11:30 p.m. on October 22, 2015. I'm skipping a little bit here. The investigation found Dunlap was Donahue was stopped. On the right shoulder of northbound I-95 near White Marsh, Trooper Dunlap was assigned to JFK Highway Barrack, working patrol in a marked car when he spotted the stop vehicle, pulled in behind it. The trooper walked up to the stop car to check on the occupant. The driver later identified as Donahue, accelerated away. So he did uh, run off, okay? Uh, Donahue turned off his vehicle lights and continued north on I-95, refusing to pull over and stop. Additional troopers joined the pursuit. Donahue was not driving at excessive speed, but was driving with his lights out and ignoring emergency lights and sirens of patrol cars. During the pursuit, Donahue's car collided with a marked patrol car uh, by a supervisor from JFK Barrett Troopers deployed stop sticks and successfully deflated the car's tires. Donahue's vehicle stopped along I-95 south of Bell Camp. The investigation found a trooper first class and a corporal who had been in pursuit were the first to reach Donahue and get him out of his car. They reported he was not fighting them but was passively resisting, and they were not immediately able to get him handcuffed. When they were attempting to handcuff Donahue, who was lying on the ground, the troopers reported that Trooper Dunlap, you oath-breaking piece of crap, that's what you are, Dunlap, uh, the Trooper Dunlap intervened and began jabbing the man repeatedly in the abdomen inside with a metal expandable baton. He also st- struck and injured the hand of one of the troopers trying to handcuff the driver. He hurt one of his fellow officers, huh? Um... The investigation found State Police Corporal grabbed Dunlap's expandable baton in an attempt to stop him from striking Donahue. The corporal reported that the trooper pulled the baton away and continued to jab Donahue. A State Police Sergeant arriving at the scene forcibly pushed Trooper Dunlap away from Donahue and ended the assault. Donahue did not request or require medical treatment according to the troopers who arrested him. He was taken to Hartford County Detention Center. Troopers who witnessed the actions of Trooper Dunlap reported that they saw to Barrett Barrett Command staff that night and criminal investigation began the next morning. Dunlap was suspended without pay and assigned to administrative duties when the criminal investigations began. State police criminal investigators, uh, presented their complete investigation to Hartford County State Attorney General, uh, State's Attorney, uh, Joe Casilli. The evidence was presented to Hartford, uh, County Grand Jury and the indictment was issued. Subsequent to his arrest, Dunlap has been suspended without pay. He has been employed by Maryland State Police since July 2013. The Maryland State Police Internal Affairs Unit is also investigating the actions of Trooper Dunlap. I've listened I uh, say okay, he said the the person that said this as he's listened since 2012 wish he would have started listening to our podcast earlier. So, here's my takeaway from this. Why did they go after this guy in the first place would be a question you might ask, okay? And as someone who's very skeptical about police motivations, it's a question I would ask. Given what occurred, I'm willing to put it on the shelf to actually examine what these other officers did as an example for what officers should be doing in these situations, not standing by and watching it happen. This man, uh, this, this state trooper, this oath-breaking piece of shit, um, was was hitting this man bad enough that multiple of his co-officers attempted to stop him and he was so intent on doing it he actually hit one of the other officers. And instead of saying, you know, it's a thin blue line, we got to look out for each other, the guy was probably a prick anyway or some bullshit like that, they went to command and said, you got to do something about this guy. Okay, you cops out there that continuously insult the intelligence of people like myself by saying, it's a few bad apples. You know what, when you have a gun, a badge, a taser, pepper spray, and a bunch of other buddies with, with boots and guns and everything else that will come to your aid and beat the shit out of people, it's not a few bad apples. It's an oath-breaking piece of shit. Okay, you do what these officers did when this shit happens, and we can start having a conversation with you that's real and genuine, and we can possibly start healing this damage that's been done by your actions being made public because of how many people have video now to show the truth. I just saw a video today of an oath-breaking piece-of-shit police officer in New Jersey who was driving in front of somebody. And the guy behind him was doing, at the time, because you can see on his dash camera, 29 miles an hour. It's pretty slow. In a residential neighborhood, but the speed limit was, I think, 35. So under the speed limit. The officer uh, was driving very, very slow, and then would speed up and slow down. And eventually, when this guy ended up, about... Oh, I don't know, a car length, car length and a half behind him. The officer slammed on his brakes. I'll put a link in the show notes and the video notes today. It's another video segment on YouTube for you guys in the podcast um, where you can see the actual video of that happening. Okay. And then the cop's reasoning was, you were so close, I thought you were going to hit me. That's why I stopped abruptly. And this was all videoed on camera. And I'll tell you what. I think the reason that that one didn't go worse, the cop gave him three citations and said, please bring your video to court. (laughs) Yeah, I bet the guy's going to. Because that man had a camera. And I'm going to again suggest that all of us install dash cameras in our vehicles for many reasons, not just for our interactions with law enforcement. But when any interaction begins with law enforcement, you notify them that you are videoing it. I think it's the one thing that can actually de-escalate these situations so they don't turn violent. It won't always work, but at least if it does, you have evidence and you have proof of what's happened. Um, and if they do take, seize, destroy the camera, it makes them look real bad. And they're kind of wising up to the point that, you know, maybe that's not the best idea anyway. Um But... If I'm going to come down on cops that do bad shit, and I always will, and I'll always call them what they are, oath-breaking pieces of shit. That is the only way to describe a person that's given that much authority, that much in control, that much backing, that many privileges that other people don't have. Because if you did what a cop does on a daily basis, you'd be thrown in prison, okay, and then abuses that power. As bad as it is, is that they have as much power as they do, when they then turn around and abuse the power based on their own rules, after they've sworn an oath, when we have cops telling people, what are you, some kind of constitutionalist? And our, you know, I mean, our immediate response to that should be, you mean the document you swore a freaking oath to? That one? Yeah, I'm a constitutionalist. I sure wish you were. Um, and you know me, I, I I prefer a stateless society, but I also expect the people in the one we have that are granted authority to obey the rules that they've set up. I know it's a pipe dream. I know it's never going to happen. But if they can be held accountable when they break it, we should. And I'm going to say one more time, you guys out there that are cops, you follow this example, and maybe we can have a more open and honest discussion with you about the supposed you know, few bad cops. Stop saying it's a few bad apples. Stop saying it's a few. There are millions and millions and millions of law enforcement officers in this country. And if 10% of them are this type of person, that's a lot. And it's something we need to do something about. And I'll tell you what, a lot of these movements are making it so we can't have this conversation on both sides. This denial that there's a problem, and then this overreach of all cops are scum and things like that. That's a feedback loop from both sides, and we can't have a discussion. I think we need a discussion. And I think, law enforcement officers, you need to be honest. You need to step up. And when you see something like this happen, when you see an officer abuse his power, you do something about it. And I'll say this. I know you're taking a risk. If you're not willing to take a risk to defend the rights of the people you're supposed to protect and serve, then I have a solution for you. I have a solution. You see that little badge they give you? You take that shit off, you go turn it in, and you go find something else to do. If you're not willing to risk your career to point out that another freaking officer broke his oath, you are just as bad and you have no business being in law enforcement at all, period. With that, let's take another one. All right, so next one in today's podcast, um, this comes from Matthew. And Matthew says, and this is, he's quoting me here. I know what's coming. Let me tell you what's coming. Here's another Jack's prediction. The next president of the United States is going to be a strong man. Big time strong man. Tough on this, tough on that, tough on this. Willing to do things to get things done and stamp on the throats of the people uh, that are wrong. Eight years. Eight years of this guy is designed to get the American people... To crave a guy they would have never ex- had accepted at any other time in history you're going to see a guy far more like Vladimir Putin as our next president than you would have ever believed twenty five years ago. You want to bet i don't know who it will be, but that will be that will be the person you're going to get. The American people are about to scream out and beg for tyranny they're going to call for it they 'll cheer it when it gets here end quote. Jack Spirico, that's me, episode 1387, July 16th, 2014, so almost two years ago. And this is Matt's little note to me in addition to that. Jack, while Hillary and Trump are not exactly what I would call a strong man, it sure seems the position they're trying to take, which really made me think about this qu- this quote you had made. Any comments on the disillusioned people that see them as a strong man? Any suggestions uh, to dealing with or waking up loved ones that are part of that group? Thanks for all you do, Matt. Okay, waking up people that are part of the disillusioned public that are voting for people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Uh, They're not as disillusioned as you might think because you know what they're not doing they're not they're not voting for people like Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and establishment people even fake establishment anti-establishment people like Cruz. So at least they've they've gotten disillusioned enough to get outside the box so to speak and stop supporting the establishment. The problem is and I'm beginning to look at this more and more. So You know me with politics, guys. I I don't take a horse in these races. I don't really care who wins, but I observe who wins because while I believe this is all the ass clown circus, it's all a pantomime, it's all a game, it's all a way to give us the illusion that we have control by electing our own tyrants once every four years, and really every two years with midterm elections. Um, Different tyrants will do different things, and we should be prepared for different situations as that stuff comes up. So... I do pay attention. And I'm thinking more and more, as much as I was wrong, because I I was the guy that also said at the beginning of this, Trump is not going to be our next president. That he is my strongman prediction. And when I think about it, And I think about, and I said it would also be a Republican. And when I said, just for the quote there, when I said eight years of this guy is to get America, like eight years of incompetence and idiocy, I'm talking about Obama, right? Like, especially the last four years, like of Obama's administration, like his second term. I mean, in fact, the last two years have been just, I mean, the guys look completely incompetent. He's taking a dive, is what I said. He's, he's, He's setting up, he's doing what his handlers are telling him to. And, you know... When I go back and I think, okay, of all the people that were running as a Republican, who could have been the strong man? You know, I said Scott Walker, but that was just like, I thought maybe they would, he would come out of kind of left field and be different. And, um, but he, when I really look at it, he, he's not a strong man. Ted Cruz is not a strong man. Kasich's not a strong man. Rubio is not a strong man. They're typical Republicans which means they're Democrats, centrist Democrats. And just like typical Democrats are centrist Republicans, it's a big bubble they're all in. There's no real difference. Um, Trump's the only one. Trump's, mens- Trump's, Trump's message is authoritarian. It's very authoritarian, but it's working. It's working so good, I find myself going, kind of hope he wins. Kind of hope he wins because it's going to piss everybody off. Kind of hope he wins because... They're constantly lying about him. Kind of hope he wins because he's being accused of violence, but the people protesting his stuff are the ones committing violence. Kind of hope he wins because when they were violent at one of his latest functions, he was willing to get his ass out of his limousine and walk through a highway divider and in the back door. Kind of hope he wins. And then I start thinking about it. I start using critical analysis, and I go, you know, it's still the ass clown circus, Jack. Don't trust any of these people see, if you can't trust any of these people and you look at Trump and the way the media has attacked him at every level and yet he survived, is it genuine or is it part of the plan? Have you noticed the more Donald Trump is attacked, the more popular he becomes? Do you really think the networks who put Donald Trump's shows on television like The Apprentice don't like Donald Trump? Do you really think they hate him? Do you th- really think the executives that he's made billions of dollars for hate him? Does that really make sense? Does that jive? What, what could have done more for Donald Trump than the media attacking him? What if the media had treated him completely fairly? What if the media had said, no, nah, the guy's not a racist. He's, got, he's, not a, he's not a sexist. He's got far too many high-paid females in his organizations. It'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? Like, to, to, to just, like, if I were Trump, I would be saying right now, let's look at everybody that's involved in this and, and let's look at how well you pay your female employees and how well you, well you pay your minority employees and let's look at how well I pay mine. That would be interesting. It would be really interesting, wouldn't it? So, since they're really, the things that are being attacked about Trump really aren't the actual problems with Trump. You know, the, the racism, saying that you want to, to prevent illegal immigration is not racist. You you have to be, there's going to be something wrong with you if you actually believe that saying we shouldn't let people come here illegally it, 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 and you go, well, that's racist. Because um, that would mean people from anywhere. Okay? It just so happens that our most poorest border is our southern one, and most of those people happen to be Hispanic. But, Jack, you're supposed to be an anarchist. You're supposed to be for open borders. Well, yeah, get rid of welfare and all of this status crap, and then we can have open borders. But we don't have that. I'm also a realist. What if Donald Trump is the strong man? I mean, Donald Trump's actually – and here's what I said, too, going back all these years. I said, oh, God, I've got to put this on the camera. I have never shown this – guys on the audio – I'm showing a rainbow farting unicorn on a coffee cup that one of the students that came to a class here brought me. I don't remember exactly who that was, but uh, thank you. And I've been meaning to give you kind of a shout-out for that. So uh, just so you guys know, I've often said the government you know, passes laws and think that means it's going to change things. Well, they can pass a law that says you get a rainbow farting unicorn. That doesn't mean you're going to get one. Anyway, back to Trump. I think it's really the case that he could be our strongman because he's for universal health care. He absolutely is. Now, the plan he's put out on his website is the Republican plan. It it is the Republican plan. Open networks, etc. In fact, if you look at Donald Trump's website on all of his issues, all of these talk radio people attacking him, he's put out a plan that is exactly what they've said they've wanted forever. But yet they all attack him. Could the whole thing be a setup? I think it could. I absolutely think that it could. Only time will tell, and we'll see. But what I'm hearing now is, well, Trump doesn't do well in general elections. We don't know that, do we? We have no idea about that. The reality hasn't set in for people yet. That you're going to be voting between Ask Clown A and Ask Clown B, and this time you're going to have Ask Clown A, Donald, Bad Hair Trump, and Ask Clown B is going to be a criminal named Hillary Clinton. And I think that you're going to see a huge ramp up on how bad Hillary really is. And it could just be that Hillary doesn't really have the presidency on her bucket list. And that everybody's in on this together. I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it all seems to be playing out exactly like I said it would on July 16, 2014. Again, time will tell. Next up, a nice quick one, and this is just a, a good thing to think about when you hear the Marodes, uh objection. We're not going to go into that objection. I've covered it uh, two feedback shows in a row now. You know, how would we build roads without government or maintain roads without government? How would we figure out where a road goes without government? Um, this is just a, an antidote from Brian in Tennessee. He says, this just a personal road story. Several years ago, when I visited Glacier National Park in Montana, the big thing going on was the rehabilitation of the Going to the Sun Road, a 50-mile-long road splitting the park and going up and over the Continental Divide at Logan Pass. It was a 10-year rehabilitation project in the 2000s. Funny thing is the road was completed in 1933 after only 11 years of construction. So with modern equipment, it was projected to take only one year less to fix the road than to build in the 20s and 30s. That was 2009. I just looked. They're still fixing it. They're still fixing it. They're not done yet. So my question, I guess, when somebody gives me the road's uh, objection is, how is it that the government can't fix a road in 2016 uh, as fast as they built it in 19, uh, well, 1922? That's when they actually started this road. So they, from 1922 to 1933, they built a 50-mile road using 1920s technology in the middle of a Great Depression. Right? Well, not in the middle. Like, the tail end was in the Depression, right? The very last part, it was during the Depression. But they were able to do that in that. And that's, I've been there. I've been to Glacier National. I've been on this road. It is a tough place to build a road. But why is it they can't fix it in the same amount of time, you know, or half the time it took them to build it almost 100 years ago? What, 80 years ago? Well, maybe it's because there's a lot of money in not finishing a road on time. And I'll give you a little, another personal anecdote of, of something like this. So where I live, there is a, uh, there's a kind of a back way in and out of our place, and it's along this really windy kind of tore-up road called Silver Creek. And it's better, even though it's kind of windy and tore up, than it would be to, uh, to go down the main state highway because it's, there's no traffic lights and what have you. And in many instances, it's a better route to take, and it saves people a lot of time. So people are willing to deal with it kind of being tore up. Well, there's two bridges on this road. Now, these are not like suspension bridges, like that you go over and you're you know up above water. These are like bridges across, like, you know, dry creek beds. We're talking 100 feet. They're overpasses. That's what they are, they're overpasses. Well, these two were targeted and they said, well, we need, we need to fix them because they're dangerous. They may or may not have been. I don't know. It took them eight months. To fix these two bridges, the company doing the work, the company doing the work, uh, had six months to do it in. They took them eight, and they were also supposed to pave a large portion leading up to the first bridge, connecting the second bridge, and all the way out. So basically, the county maintenance area was supposed to have the bridge fixed, fixed, and be paved. They did finish the bridges, but they didn't pave anything. And then they quote went out of business. Okay, they went out of business. They went broke. That's why they. That's what they told the state. The reason we can't finish the job is we're bankrupt. Okay. Interesting thing. This corporation was a sub corporation of another corporation. One corporation owned another corporation. They extracted capital from the job. That company went out of business and went bankrupt. And the parent company spins off another corporation. And now they're doing work in other places just like this with no demerits because that's not the company that did the work. This is a new company. And guess what? We should turn them in! It's all perfectly legal. It's just considered protecting yourself under the existing corporate laws and structure. Sorry. Sorry, taxpayers. You didn't get your paved road. So now the county is stepping in and patching the pavement up with their own stuff. Okay. The truth, these two bridges could have been replaced in a couple weeks maximum. Because I've seen similar projects done in that frame of time. The paving, I watched, I watched in Hot Springs, Hot Springs, Arkansas, Arkansas. I watched 11 miles of road completely paved in four days. Four days. Not good road either, and it was a great job, and it got done because the people there had to get it done. So I'm not saying the government always screws up when it comes to building and maintaining roads, but I'm saying it's not like we have a nirvana. It's not like it's perfect, and it's not like we're not getting ripped off all the time. So I ask you, if the people paying for the road had direct recourse with the people maintaining or building the road, do you think there'd be less fraud? Do you think you'd let somebody get away with that? Do you think it would just go out to a public bidding contract where some guy sets up a sub-corporation and makes his wife a 51% owner so he can get minority preference, screw off, go bankrupt, put her in charge of a new company, and just take more business doing that, and it'd all be perfectly legal? Do you think that would happen if we actually had direct relationships with the people that built to maintain our roads? I'm just saying. So um, this next one is a little funny, but not really. Um, as I said Earlier in the show, the shit has hit the fan in Venezuela. Now, I know you think this is something that's been going on for a long time. We've heard a lot of bad news coming out of Venezuela. Uh, Supermarket shelves emptied, etc. But uh, this one comes from Robert. Robert says, People have been saying that Venezuela was in a crisis, but really, no cash. So what? There's not much to buy anyway. Power? Only four hours a day? There's not much fresh food to go bad anyway. Work? Two days per week? Sounds like a reason to party. Not complain. But now this. is out of beer. Now that is a crisis. Let me read this little article to you. Uh, Venezuela's largest beer maker halted the last of its four production plants on Friday in a spat with the government over access to foreign currency, threatening a shortage in a nation already hit by severe scarcities of food and other products. Imperius Polar, the largest private company in Venezuela, had warned it would end production on Friday because President Nicolas Madro's socialist government was refusing to release it dollars to import malted barley under strict exchange controls. Operations at Polar Plant in San Joaquin, which had been its last still in production, were stopped on Friday morning. A company spokeswoman said, with this activities at the four plants of Polar Brewery are halted. She added under leader Amiris Squand i don 't know Secura uh, confirmed the halt. A union leader, Amira Secura, confirmed the halt quote today, the morning shift was suspended at the San Joaquin plant. He said that was the last one to be stopped at Pol- uh, and Polar's biggest. Polar makes about 80% of the beer consumed in Venezuela. Maduro's government has accused Polar of exaggerating its dollar needs and hoarding products as part of an economic war by the business community, politicians and the United States aimed at undermining socialism in Venezuela. The OPEC nation is struggling with a recession, soaring consumer prices and chronic shortages. Officials have said Polar's billionaire president, Lorenzo Mendoza, should spend his own offshore money if he needs dollars. Earlier this week, in an obvious reference to Polar, Maduro threatened to seize any plants halted by private companies and hand them over to workers. Any plant that is shut will be recovered. It is a serious crime against production, he said. Polar is well-known in Venezuela for producing the flour to make the beloved nation's staple, a paras, a form of cornmeal flatbread. Okay, so I could rail on socialism here, but why? It's so easy to do. Um, it's the it's America's fault that Venezuela's socialism has failed. That's, that's the object. I'm not even going to go there. I'm actually going to talk about the problem here, being out of beer. You see, this is why I've told you for a very long time to learn to make your own beer and alcoholic beverages because when the shit hits the fan, it's as good as money. And I think you're seeing that here. And it is a comfort for many people. It really is. And whether it's a comfort for you or not doesn't matter. It's currency. What do you think a 12-pack of beer is going to be worth in barter in Venezuela in about three weeks? But Jack the socialist government's going to seize the plant and hand it over to the workers. Yeah, that's not going to work very well. It's really not. Because the producers, the people that actually get shit done, aren't going to be there to make sure it gets done. I think what you might have is a bunch of drunken Venezuelans in the brewery uh, smuggling out a bunch of stuff to sell on the black market with no real incentive to bring the production level back up because it's more profitable for them to smuggle out a few cases here and there than to actually fix the problem. And this is the problem with socialism. So we'll just take over. But you don't know how to run a brewery. You don't know how to run a business. And the actual problem is, nobody wants your money. So what the company's saying is, we need dollars, we need dollars to be able to buy, like, barley. Because if we don't have that, we can't make beer. And check it out. Like, we live in the tropics, and this isn't a good place to grow barley. So... What can you grow in the tropics? Fruits, apples, etc. Ciders, meads, right? This is the way to go down there. So I just think it's interesting that when the shit hits the fan, the beer really does run out. And that might give you an incentive to figure out how to make your own in case the shit hits the fan where you're at. With that, we'll take another one. Um, Next up, I got several emails, uh, especially from students who have been here at the uh, Nine Mile Farm TSP Ranch and said they were part of uh, either the construction of the self-watering containers or saw them after they were constructed with, well, how's it going? So there's a video I did recently, a Duck Chronicles video, where we're hanging out with the baby ducks, where I actually show these, and you can see them. I'll put a link in the show notes to that video today, so you can take a look at it if you want to. But it's basically made from three uh, six-foot-long by two-foot-deep by two-foot-wide steel stock tanks, and they were put up on cinder blocks and leveled, so they're all the same level. And then I plumbed them with a three-quarter inch pipe. It's either three-quarter, or half inch. I'm pretty sure it's three-quarter. Uh, from the bottom drain hole, so they're all connected together. And then I added um, seven in- six inches of rock, uh, crushed rock. So pretty big stuff, like the size rock you'd find on railroad tracks. But before I did that, I took some plastic um, drain pipe, the stuff that's like corrugated that you bury, and I laid that on the bottom. And I also took, in each one, three of them where I cut them Um, a little bit um, taller than a rock, about eight inches high, and I put those vertical, and then I filled those with the same compost soil that's in the whole rest of the thing. So then six inches of rock and then an inch of perlite, or actually about two inches of perlite, which is a a puffed rock. It's that white stuff in potting soil that always floats out the top. This ain't going to float out the top because then I filled the rest of it over a foot and a half with compost and topsoil. So it's like a lasagna down there. But then there's these three pieces of pipe going down to the bottom with fill the soil, so they're wicking the moisture up from the bottom. And then there's also a piece of pipe going across the bottom of them, this perforated pipe, like drain pipe, like you put in for a French drain. And, again, they're all plumbed together, so there's one filler spot on one of them. You fill it up with water till it overflows at a little pipe that sets the level at 7 inches high. If I decide I want to hold more water, I can make that little pipe a little longer. If I want it to be less water, I can make it a little shorter. And that holds that level constant. And so I put that system in in October. October. It's May. I have never watered it once since the day I filled it up. There's been enough rain that it's recharged and refilled itself. Right now, I've got peppers in it. I've got, I'm have got. i probably going to get my first zucchini squashes from it by the end of the week. I've got some female squash with blossoms on that are already a couple inches long, and that stuff starts producing like crazy. No squash bug damage. Every time around here I've planted zucchini on the ground, I've ended up with squash bugs all over it, vine borers, etc. No damage, and with only a couple plants... It's really easy to keep an eye on it and do something about it if I see any uh, signs show up. I've got tomatoes. I've got peppers. I've got cucumbers crawling up a trellis behind it. I've got butternut squash. I have a huge amount of production from these three beds. I definitely am going to be putting more of them in in more creative ways. We're going to probably put in a fence for our like a little mini front yard inside our front yard, right? Because basically I have three acres. It's all perimeter fenced. And so we have kind of a front and a back side. So when we got the front door, it's wide open, except for the paddocks that the ducks are in. And the ducks get up on the porch and they crap, and they pull Dorothy's flowers out of her flower pots and stuff. Well, the nice thing with these is because they're sitting up on the concrete, on the cinder blocks, they're high enough the ducks can't get into them. So we're thinking about putting two, they make these same stock tanks eight feet long. So that would take up 16 foot of the fence And putting them like right in front of our door, like to each side, and then putting a um, cattle panel arched uh, at eight feet of width between them with a small walk-through gate, and then just fence the rest like you know uh, Americana white picket fence. And then she can have those with perennial flowers and some herbs, and then we can put some hummingbird vines across the the arch. Look really cool. So we're definitely going to do more with them because they're working so well. Another update that I'm really thinking about doing now. My quail aviary I put in is uh, 50 feet long. Uh, it's actually 48 feet of interior space and extends out to 50 feet. So I bought some 50% shade cloth. Uh, and with the hardware cloth, the cattle panels, and the uh, hog rings holding all of that together for the aviary, which is like a big, long, three-section cage that the quails live in, uh, my wife and I tried to put that on the aviary. It was an unmitigated disaster. It was snagging everywhere. We eventually got it off, and we decided we need to have like a little party here. It was about 10 people to work on it to get it done. But I had also bought a 14 uh, by by, uh, 12-foot piece of shade cloth for um, my greenhouse uh, that I'm going to actually rebuild a totally different way, so I don't need it for that now. And that would cover most of it with shade cloth. And it's a 70% shade cloth, so greater level of shade, it's a much heavier-duty, finer knit, and it, it would be easy to deploy, right? And then each one of those sections could be shaded but still let sun in, and the birds would always have a place they're shaded. And if it was wintertime, you wanted to roll them up, be a lot easier to do as individual panels. It would work really well. So what we're thinking about doing is buying two more of those panels and then putting in another 50-foot-long structure, this one only 8-foot wide, just with cattle panels, uh, and then the hog ring's all done so that the tips are in to bind the cattle panels together, and then put that that fifty percent shade cloth over it and have two two foot wide raised beds, a hundred foot of bed, and just leave the ends open and it 's a shade house to grow in Texas, which would be fantastic. so I'm probably going to begin that construction project next. and what I'm really thinking about doing, what I'm really thinking about doing is setting up those raised beds so that they're wicking beds. So that they work the same way. I obviously am not going to go out and buy that many cattle panels, but there's other ways to do this, like with, let's say, pond uh, pond liner. You could do that. There's a lot of different ways we could do that. So I'm going to look into that. It may not be necessary because just putting in simple irrigation, there's water already plumbed there on timers. With 50% shade, you wouldn't really have much of a of a problem with uh, irrigation requirements. But I could produce more food than we would ever need from that. So that's what we're thinking about doing with that next. On that note, I have a lesson for those of you raising quail outside or in aviaries where things are growing on the ground. I have a plant on this property called horse nettle. It is toxic to a lot of things. It is damaging to the throat and uh, mucous membranes and things like that, but it's also a fairly potent neurotoxin. It is uh, a member of the nightshade family, which tomatoes and potatoes are members of. It's far more deadly than the, the green parts of those, and uh, it's, it's bad news. It is something, if you have it in your pasture, you need to eradicate it, or at least take it down to very minimal uh, levels. Horses don't like it, but they can get it in with other stuff, so if there's a lot of it, you could have toxicity problems with horses. Uh, I knew this stuff was not good. But I wasn't that worried about it, because we have ducks and geese, and they just don't eat it. They just do not eat it. A little bit of it came up in the third cell of the aviary. And our quail had been doing fantastic in the aviary. Our adult Texas A&M quail, first section, happy, calm. So calm that when people come and visit, they go, I can't believe these birds. If you walk in there with them, they just look at you like, what are you doing? You got something for me? Totally placid and calm. Get a little upset when you're moving them, but overall, not bad. We move them to the second section. Everything continues. We move them to the third section. We start having birds first hang themselves, getting between the hardware cloth and the cattle panels. So I go and wring all that so they can't do it anymore. Then we just have birds dying. I go in there and start looking through everything, and I start finding little bits of horse nettle growing in there and definitely been eaten. The birds, even though the the ones that weren't dead, were acting weird. They were panicky. They were freaking out. So we eradicated the horse nettle, and we pushed them into the second cell. And the next day, they were back to their calm, everyday selves. It's a hard lesson to learn to lose birds. And I, I imagine they were, because it's a neurotoxin, it was messing with their brains, they were freaked. They were freaked, like tripping, right? It's like tripping quail. And uh, we lost several before we figured out what it is. Learn from my mistake and don't make it yourself. Um, if you're doing anything outdoor with quail, tractoring them, aviaries, etc., be on the lookout for horse nettle. I'll put a link in today's show notes where you can identify what it looks like. I've gone through and pulled it all out. Uh, we actually have juvenile quails in there now because we're switching to browns. And I'm, I'm in there every day checking it. Um, and I also know that even if I don't see any, if I start seeing my birds act freaked out, if they start acting not calm anymore, that it's something that's likely there and I need to, to look for it and eradicate it. So beware of this stuff. And you know let that be a lesson, too. Just because one animal doesn't eat something doesn't mean no animals will eat it. And they're also confined in there. So there's plenty of other things for them to eat, but... You know, it's probably more likely that they would do that than if they were, you know, running wild on the farm, which Hortnick's quail can't do. You can't let them out in the wild. They cannot survive in the wild. They're not like Bob White's, etc. Anyway, Anyway, with that, let's go on to another one. One more quick note on the horse and identification. I put a link to the Wikipedia article up on it. You will often see pictures of it and descriptions of it that has thorns. Many times the young plants do not have thorns. They put thorns on later. You also uh, see that the leaves are quite pointed. There are varieties of this uh, particular family of plant where the leaves are more rounded. So you you really want to be on a lookout for this stuff. And one way you'll know you really have it is when you pull it up. It has a long, white taproot. It kind of looks like um, a white carrot or uh, a skinny um A skinny, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Skinny piece of horseradish, you know? Um, it, it looks kind of like a tomato, potato look to it. And it will develop little orange, uh, tomato-like things on it. The whole thing's poisonous, just so you know. Um, and so be on the lookout for it. You don't want to eat it. You probably wouldn't eat much of it, but you don't want your animals eating it either. So the next one comes to me from David, kind of a follow-up to my show on outdoor cooking. It says, uh, What should we consider when purchasing a gas, liquid propane specifically, grill? What brands and models do you like? What features, BTUs, number of burners, cast iron, stainless steel, etc., do you think uh, are important? And what are not to buy uh, once, uh, cry once grill? Right now I'm considering the Weber Genesis. Um, My next gas grill will be a Weber Genesis. Whether it will be the 330 or the 310, whether or not I'm willing to spend the extra 100 bucks, Um for a little bit more uh, in the way of power and features, I haven't really decided yet. Um, but it will be one or the other. Uh, my recommendation is if you want to buy a grill and not buy another grill for a very long time, look very hard at, at Weber. I really like the Charbroil two uh, two burner two side infrared true infrared. Uh, I liked them for a lot of years. They've changed the way they're doing some things there, so I'm not as in love with that grill anymore. But it's still a good grill. But it's still a grill that you you know if you use it the way I do, you're gonna basically put it out of commission in about two years. Now that means the average person will probably use it for five, just because of the amount of grilling I do. When it comes to grills, one of the biggest concerns you have with propane paint grills is flare-ups and the damn thing catching on fire. One of the things I like about the Charbroil with the reflector technology for the infrared is it just doesn't happen. I've never seen it happen. I, maybe it can, but pretty much uh, the drippings get incinerated pretty quick to where they never really build up. With just about every other type of grill that I've ever used, and I've used a lot of gas grills, you get flare-ups and sometimes the whole damn thing can catch on fire, right? Um, and a grease fire. Weber, and I've looked at every grill. Whenever I go to a department store, if I see a grill I've never seen before, I look at it for this very reason. Every grill I've ever seen that's a gas grill, when I don't keep, you know, some of them are cheaply made, some of them are heavy duty like Weber's are, um, but no matter what I've seen, whenever I open the the thing where the tank goes and look up to the way the grill handles the drip of uh, fats, There's usually some sort of a funnel, it goes to a relatively small hole that leaks out to some sort of drip catchment tray, and that leads over to some kind of reservoir that collects it, except the Weber. When you look, so check this out. Go if you don't believe me, go to you know Lowe's or Home Depot or any place you sell Weber grills, open it up and look up there. The bottom is wide open. It's wide open, and then down way down from the burners is that drip catch tray. That has an angle that takes whatever's dropped away from the burners into the reservoir. There's no place for it to build up. There's no, there's no funnel going to these little small different holes and things like that. I don't know if those other grills are trying to hold more heat in or what have you, but every, I mean, I've looked at expensive grills, mid price grills, cheap grills. Every one of them, when you look at them that way, they have the potential to cause grease fires. The Weber is the only grill I've found up till now that doesn't have that. The other thing is, that not all grills are cheaply made, but many of them, when you lift the lid on a grill, you want to feel weight. If you have thin sheet metal, thin stainless steel, whatever, with no installation, it's very hard to do some roasting, baking, etc. With, uh, with your grills. It, it really is. So um, you end up just with a, a hot grill surface. Not really my cup of tea when it comes to uh, to the grills. Now, um, I prefer cast iron for my grills. I really do. Cast iron grill grates. They're more maintenance than some of the other options, but I prefer them a great deal if you keep them well seasoned, pay attention to what you're doing, etc. Uh, to me, they do a lot more for you uh, than they would if you were using just about anything else. I love the way cast iron cooks once it's hot. It actually does take longer to get up to temperature. But with a good powerful grill like the Genesis uh or even the Weber Spirit, which is kind of their entry level uh good grill, um, it, it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take as long as waiting for charcoal to get hot. The control is there, the precision control is there. It's something that uh that that's big with me. I like precision control when I'm cooking parts are readily available and i mean the things that will burn out on you or wear out on you are going to be like your the burners and reflectors over time can wear out they're easy to replace they're really easy to replace so i the next grill i buy when i finally say you know the charbroil has had its last rodeo or i'm ready to move it to reserve status where it's for heating up tortillas and stuff for events uh, in fact the only reason i haven't done it yet is i don't want to spend the money I don't want to spend six to $800 on a grill right now. I don't need one, but I want one. And it's only a matter of time before I break down and do it. Um, I want to let you know about another little perk, though, if you're an Amazon subscriber. You can actually, for on average, depending on your area, for about $70, have someone assemble your grill for you. Now, I'm not saying everybody should do this. I'm not saying I would do this, but I might, and I'll tell you why. This is what's included. They come out, they unpackage your grill, they assemble your grill, and then this is the important part for people like me that live where we have private trash services and you don't just throw shit out at the side of the road. They take the waste away. They take it away. Um, you know, I'd have to cut it all up, shove it into one of my garbage bins, and probably take two to three uh, weeks with trash to get rid of it all. Now, the cardboard could be used for mulch, but there's a lot of crap after you're done unpackaging and assembling a grill. And I then have to ask myself, how long would it take me to put that grill together? An hour and a half, two hours? Could my time be better spent doing other things than assembling a grill and get rid of the crap? I don't know. For me, it's hard for me not to put my own grill together. I I, I like assembling products and things like that. But it is a good option. And you can just uh, search for grill assembly, uh, gas grill assembly, and make sure you don't let it search in automotive. They don't make it really easy. It used to be, whenever you were buying a grill, it just said, do you want this? It was like an add-on, and I don't know why Amazon changed that, but um, it, it's something to consider. And you can actually get a Weber Genesis grill um, from Amazon, shipped for free. Okay, it's on Prime, check it out. You can get the E310, um, which is plenty of grill, for six ninety-nine shipped, Or you can get the E330 for $799 shipped. And the biggest difference between the 310 and the 330 is the 330 has two side burners, where the 310 basically just has two side trays to put stuff on. So you can close down your side burners, use them as work surfaces, or you can open them up and you have two side burners. In fact, the uh, the 330 has a 12,000 BTU and a 10,000 BTU side burner, one of each. Uh and it also has a thirty eight thousand BTU uh uh input uh for your main cooking service. That's plenty of power. That's all the power you would ever need out of a grill uh for the type of thing that most of us do. Fantastic grill. Now again, you can get the uh, the three ten for six ninety nine, the three thirty for seven ninety nine. Why and shipped to your house. Why is that a good deal? Because if you go to Lowe's and buy it retail at the store, it's the same price. And you have to go get it, and you have to haul it back to your house, and you have to deal with all that crap. You can literally order this thing and have it delivered to your house. And for another 70 bucks, someone will come put it together for you and take the garbage away. Um, I can't see myself going down to Lowe's and dealing with them except, here's the one except. If you have somebody at home, because they're pretty heavy grills to help you unload it, And they will always help you at Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever to load it into the truck. So you you get that taken care of. A lot of times you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot and they'll have them assembled. And you can buy one that's already assembled. So that would be the trade-off. You can either have it shipped to your house, assemble yourself, or pay to have it assembled. Or you can get some uh, muscle to help you with the loading and unloading. And you can get it already assembled. And usually, not always, usually... This, the price for it in-store assembled is the same price as it, it would be if it wasn't assembled. So, now not always. Not always. When you go to a Lowe's and there's like a whole shitload of them out front chained together with a cable, yeah, usually it's the same. Some stores do that, some don't. So those are your trade-offs. But if I was going to buy a grill today, it would be between the E310 and E330 Weber Genesis. And I would probably spend the extra 100 bucks for the 330. Because the two side burners are nice, and they're good side burners. They're not low end crappy sideburners like on you know uh, a uh, what do you call it a Walmart brand or some off brand or charboil or something like that. This is probably the best grill you can buy without spending a thousand dollars or more in my opinion so hopefully that helps some of you because it is uh, for some of you grilling season for me, grilling season is every day, but for a lot of us we're just coming into that time. real quick note before we move on there. I did put links to the weber's uh, the 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 Genesis is in the show notes today. I did not put links to the Spirit, which is the lower entry price for a very similar um, grill as far as features go. And and I'll tell you why. Um, The Genesis is made in America. It's a much higher quality grill. It has far less problems. The Spirit is cheaper because it's made in China. I don't bash everything made from China, but... You don't save that much. You're talking 100 to 200 bucks maximum that you're going to save on a comparable version. And it's to me, I just don't recommend it. If you want to buy one, go ahead, but I would definitely kind of step to that level of the Genesis. I also want to like warn you about some of the crap you'll see on Amazon reviews. Like I'll see complaints about like the cast iron grill of a Weber. It's poor quality. Look at the rust on it. Oil your grill, dipshit. When I tried to pick it up by the, you know, just other grills too, I I tried to pick it up by the shelving, it broke. The shelf is not a handle. It's for holding food. It's not for picking up a freaking 200-pound grill, moron. Be careful with Amazon reviews. Read them in context. Uh, They're useful, but there's a lot of idiots out there abusing equipment and don't know how to maintain it and then blaming the manufacturer. I'm not saying it's a flawless grill. It's the best thing I can find under a Grand. That's all I'm saying. Uh, moving on to the next one. So my next question comes in from James in Connecticut, and it's about the new $20 bill with Harriet Tubman on it, because we got to get that evil uh, white guy, uh, Andy Jackson, off of there. By the way, for all the liberals that... You know, fought hard for this, all the Democrats who wanted women's rights, and they wanted to put Harriet Tubman on the 20. Isn't it great that Andrew Jackson is the founder of the Democratic Party, which has traditionally been the party of racism and uh, opposing women's rights? Um, I'm a political atheist, so I don't really care, but I'm just kind of pointing that out. Andrew Jackson at least did kill the central bank. That was probably the best thing Andrew Jackson did for this company and paid down the debt. But uh, it is the founder of the Democratic Party and the historically racist Democratic Party, and Harriet Tubman was a gun-toting Republican. It's just interesting to point out. This question really has nothing to do with that. I just I just think that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't that great? Um, anyway, hey, Jack, I have a question about the topic of putting Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. That's where I thought this was going. It didn't. Uh, I'm not too savvy when it comes to economics, but when I heard this, my instinct was it sounds like a great marketing strategy to justify printing more money. Am I reaching here? I've heard without verification the Federal Reserve actively destroys old bills. My gut tells me it does not exceed the amount of new money being brought into circulation. Any thoughts or concerns we should be looking at here? Okay, the Federal Reserve prints money electronically. The Federal Reserve does not print paper money. Did you know that? Now, they print the representation of physical money, but they don't actually present print the actual physical dollars. That's done by um, the United States Mint and Treasury Department, right? Actually, just the, Tre- the Department of Treasury. The Mint makes coinage. So, no, the Federal Reserve doesn't really kind of control how many paper bills are floating around out there. Uh, next up, only about 3% of the total M3, that's all the money that is, is in paper bills. 97% of the money is electronic. It's ones and zeros in a computer. They, they, when they say they're printing money when they, with quantitative easing and stuff like that, it's not like the printing press is actually going, yum, 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 spitting out bills. What they actually mean is somebody types down and says, make deposit into Bank of America $14 billion or whatever it is, and then the Federal Reserve takes possession of their bonds, and new money is created out of thin air. That's, that's how they make new money. Uh, the same way the banks make money when they loan you money to buy a house. What? The banks pr- print money? Yeah. Yeah, when you go to, let's say, let's say you go to uh, to uh leave names out of this. You go to uh, Joe Blow's Bank, right? You go to Joe Blow's Bank, and you go, Joe Blow, bank officer, I would like to borrow money, please, to buy a house and they go okay do you have credit you have, you know so they run all your stuff and they go yeah you qualify you can buy up to $250,000 house what you think they do is you think that they give you money that they already had and then they hold a reserve against that money but that's not what they do what they actually do when they loan you $250,000 is create $250,000 based on your promise to pay it back that's what they really do they make a journal entry with a computer. It says, deposit into the hands of Thomas uh, Smith, so that's your name, uh, $250,000. And that used to then buy the house. And you tender some form of down payment and what have you. And then your promise to repay the debt plus interest results in the creation of $250,000 of new money. This is called fractional reserve banking. It's way they expand and contract the monetary supply in America today. Did you know that? Not just the Federal Reserve prints money. This is a good gig. The banks are in on it, too. So, the Federal Reserve, in its attempt to you know, spur inflation because deflation is terrible in a debt based society you know all our money 's debt, therefore we 're in a debt based society uh, and, and deflation is like the worst thing economically that can happen i 'm not saying that a deflationary economy can 't be good i 'm saying it can 't be good based on the type of economy we have. We need a steady 2 to 4% inflation for the plan to work. The plan is to screw you. Let's make no mistake about that. The plan is to screw you and steal value from your money. But to keep the whole economic machine churning, they need that. That's why they try to spur inflation. So when they dump a whole bunch of new money in the economy, what they're hoping is that money has then what's called monetary velocity. So they push money into the top, and what they're looking for is the banks to start going, okay, we can only sit with so much cash. We've got to find some place to loan it out. When they loan it out, they're not loaning the money they were given. They're loaning a, 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 a percentage of what they were given. So if you give a bank a billion dollars, it's not that it can now loan $900 million. When you work out all the math, the, the bank can turn around with that billion dollars and loan out $9 billion holding the billion as a 10% reserve by the creation of new money. So Harriet Tubman going on the bill or when Andrew Jackson went from a little Andy Jackson to big Andy Jackson, when the money got all the colors on it that looks so much like Monopoly money, it's almost scary. Uh, and all these different changes are made to the paper bills. Some of those are legitimate things to help prevent counterfeiting. But there has always been a policy of every so often changing the way the money looks. Hmm, why would they do that? Well, because the more times they do that, the more people have an expectation of what cash is supposed to look like. So when Harriet makes her debut, and I think it's 2020, uh, and you come into a store five years later and you pay with good old Andy Jackson, no one's going to look at it sideways. But what if it's an old Andy Jackson without the little strip in it, really, really old money, the the money they destroy? Then what is this? Recently, there was a story of a child that went to a school in Houston and spent a a $2 bill that came from a bank, by the way, that was from like the 1950s and was accused of passing a counterfeit bill and threatened with a felony until the officers actually tracked it back to where it came from. And the bank said, yeah, it's a real bill. It started out because the stupid people that run your public school systems and law enforcement officers apparently in in Houston are are too dumb to even know that there is a such thing as a $2 bill. You know, it... it, it, (laughs) It, it has Thomas Jefferson on it and scenes of liberty on the rear. I guess that's they're not familiar. Anyway, um, so they tracked this down and figured out it was real. Well, what really kind of set it in a spiral was the people in the cafeteria have these little counterfeit pens that you've seen when you, you know, usually they don't do it on ones and twos and fives, but bigger bills like fifties and hundreds. They'll take this little counterfeit pen out and they mark it. And it's supposed to look a certain way. And if it doesn't, it's a fake bill. So they take this out, and this bill's so old, it doesn't work for this bill. They put the mark on it, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Oh my God, it's a counterfeit bill. We're going to put this 13-year-old in in prison for a felony for passing a $2 bill, right? You don't counterfeit. You don't... F- God, st- I'll put a link in the notes. You, you don't counterfeit $2 bills. How? What kind of person could afford to counterfeit $2 bills other than the government, all right? So... <laughs> That that starts to lead you why they do this. It's not just to prevent counterfeiting. It's because people become uncomfortable with older and older bills. While they're still technically legal tender, they become uncomfortable with them. So what if you're someone that has said, you know what? I don't trust the banks. I don't trust the government. And I'm going to take some of my money off grid. And I'm going to do it in the form of cash. I'm gonna get a safe or a lockbox or something. I'm gonna band it up in twenties. I'm gonna put twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars in cash away. The government doesn't like that. They'd like that money to surface like a you know like a submarine, and then they're gonna ask you where'd all this cash come from, you know, unless it's going into an immediate purchase or being parceled out bit by bit. If you just walk into the bank one day with fifty thousand dollars in cash. Say I have old bills, I'd like to exchange for new bills. We're going to have one of those uh, suspicious activity reports go down. I, I promise you. Even though there's no actual transaction. By the way, they're not going to have the cash for you. What if you go to deposit that much cash just out of the blue? Decide so you want to bring it into the bank. Why would you? Well, what if it's yearning to kind of be money that ages? You have money put away. Some people have hundreds of thousands of dollars put away like this, and they only spend cash. You know, how often do you see a $20 bill with a date on it of 1975? Not very often. One or two, fine. But what what happens when, you know, someone decides I want to pay cash for a car? And they go down to a car dealership and make a deal for $10,000 cash and actually bring cash. And they're all 1982 bills. And that looks a little funny. Well, the more you change the money, the more you surface cash. The more you compel people who are stockpiling cash, to come exchange it, to bring it back on grid. So there's definitely political motivation in replacing Andy Jackson, because we could have made another change without doing that. But that's why they change the physical money so often, to surface money, to make it show up, to make people uncomfortable with taking large amounts of cash that doesn't look the way the cash is supposed to look today. Now you know. With that, let's take another one. All right, guys. So the next one is business question. And it's from Jay. Jay says, at what point does it make sense for someone with a small side business to look into a tax attorney and a CPA? Details, I live in Connecticut and have been doing computer consulting for doctor's offices uh, outside of my regular job for about five years. I earn anywhere from $500 to $2,500 a year on the side business. There's no real expense to do the job, no equipment or anything to depreciate. I drive to some locations, others I remote into. At what point would I benefit from the cost of a tax attorney and a CPA? Um, a tax attorney at this point, you do not need. Your your operation is not large enough to warrant even incorporation. There's no reason for you not to do business like this as basically a sole proprietorship. And even if you did incorporate, a simple S-Corp or LLC with pass-through income would be all you'd need. When you get into situations with incorporation, unless you really trust partners and you're comfortable writing your own uh, 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 agreement, um your own uh, articles of incorporation and your own contracts, uh, you you really need to involve an attorney. Uh, you don't always have to do that. And small business startups, you can often, with good people, I'm not saying don't put it in writing, but you can do it yourself. You can go to LegalZoom or Inc.com or whatever the hell it is, set up your own LC, and write your own agreement, just so everybody understands each other. When you get into situations with larger companies, Uh, You you probably want an attorney to help with the corporate formation because there could be things you never thought of, like what about people? uh, What happens when one of your partners dies and they have an heir that's supposed to inherit their share of the company? That's just one example, and that's where an attorney can help you make good decisions about how to handle that. Um, I have a way I usually handle that, but I'm not even going to say it because it's different based on the company. And Does the spouse know anything? Are they useful to the company? Do they want to buy out? Well, can the company afford to buy out right now? There's all types of considerations there. But for a, a sole person, an individual, forming a corporation is pretty simple. Now, you might want to consult with a tax attorney about the form of corporation if it's complicated. But what you're doing is basically self-employment. So either S corp or LLC will work the same way. They'll pass the income through to you. You pay the income tax on it, and you know what? It's 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 really not that complicated, and it gives legitimacy to your Schedule C. I don't even know that I would do that at twenty five hundred dollars a year in billing. It's just it's contract employment. It's ten ninety nine. Leave it be. CPA. Whoa, totally different. Totally different when I say a tax attorney and CPA I'm generally talking about a person that's about the form of business they're going to have significant capital uh, investment they're going to have other partners there's a lot of moving things to get your arms around to figure out how do we do this what state do we do this what form do we use uh, how do we divide up shares how do we create exit strategies all of that That shit needs a tax attorney okay um, but you need and th- so the CPA works with you to review the attorney's advice and point out things the attorney may not think of from a financial standpoint, like, you know, this business would qualify under a certain form you file out with the IRS and beg for to change its fiscal year. And since you're starting this company in the middle of the year, like a June, you you would have a full year to to take your revenue and turn it into an expense and not accrue corporate earnings, and you might want to do that. And it would be easier to do that with a C-corp, and the reason you'd be, you know, okay with the corporate taxes is by using this mitigation strategy and paying this out of salaries, there wouldn't be much left for the corporation to pay us taxes. But if you're going to do dividends uh, to your, to your shareholders, then it's a different story because now you're truly in a double tax strategy. All types of things like that, that a CPA may have a better financial reasoning with than a tax attorney. Okay. Now imagine we don't have all that complicated shit. When you start telling me there's not much that's deductible, Drive some places and what. This is where you want a good CPA anyway. If you file anything other than a 1040 EZ, okay, the simple 10 line form that you just fill out yourself and you look your shit up and stick it in there. If you're itemizing, if you're taking things like sales tax deduction because you're high income and you spend a lot of money and your sales tax exceeds safe harbor, did you know that? If you're itemizing, sales tax is now considered deductible. So there's a safe harbor discount, but if you buy a car or something like that, you have a big chunk of sales tax that even though you're paying it as debt over time or leasing it over time, you paid it that year. That's, that rate right there will usually give you half your safe harbor. So like what we do is every single thing we spend a dime on, we save the receipt and we record the sales tax. Dorothy plugs them all into Excel and we take a total sales tax deduction. You may not know that your, your, your CPA, if they're any good, would. So I think everybody, everybody with any significant income, even if it's from employment, should have a good CPA helping you strategize how you can create deductions. You may find that you can create deductions using this business that you don't think you can. So a CPA doesn't have to be expensive. A, a good CPA can be, you know, an employee that works part time or seasonally at H&R Block. Uh, you don't have to have a big name CPA. Or Jackson Hewitt or something like that. Now, the little people that set up in Walmart to do rapid refunds, not what you're looking for. You're looking for a good accountant um, that knows what they're doing and specializes in finding deductions. But generally speaking, we spend about five hundred dollars a little more maybe to file our taxes using our CPA. That CPA will generally put two to three thousand dollars of additional tax refund or tax we don't pay back into our pocket. Now, I'm in a unique situation. I am self-employed. There's a lot of shit to deduct. And that number's probably lower because I'm so good at making sure I've already found everything I think. And I'll tell you the truth, at this point, she doesn't find that much anymore. But I learned from her, so now we keep using her, because who knows what's going to happen and what's going to change. So CPA, I put into two classifications, a a strategic CPA that's working with you on a business formation, strategy, corporate structure, et cetera, and then CPA that's your general day-to-day CPA that does your taxes for you and things like that. As you get into larger businesses, now you want a more strategic CPA that can help you with things like cash flow, business strategy, things like that. Like I said earlier, when I answered a question last week to a guy that's like, I'm coming out with a degree in accounting, And I can have these great job offers. Do I take it or do I go to my own practice? Like you take the job initially, because you're going to learn things like that. A value to a CPA to me when I was running big companies is they could come to me in February and say you're going to have a cash shortfall for three weeks in August if everything goes to plan. You know, if everything goes basically well, you're going to have now it's not a problem. You're going to you're going to be right by the end of the year. But what you're going to need to get the business across that bridge is a revolving line of credit that we can apply for now. With these numbers that the bank will be happy to give us because we're asking for it in February, we already see the shortfall. We already know what to do about it. We have all the mitigation strategy in, in play. That's a different type of CPA than the one that just does your taxes. Okay. When you start talking about a business getting larger, that's the kind of CPA that I'm putting into that little boat with the tax attorney working together as a team. When you're doing a few thousand dollars, even $10,000, $20,000 a year uh, in side business, it's probably not the case if you are a sole proprietorship or like a husband-wife team that you really need a tax attorney at that point. But everybody, everybody that's doing anything other than a 1040 uh, EZ should be looking to have a good CPA in their court because they pay for themselves. And they pay for themselves many times over. I've said this before, but a good CPA is worth their weight in gold over a lifetime of doing business with them. They really are. Thousands of dollars a year for what, 30, 40, 50 years of your working life, money that you don't give your slave masters because they know how to make sure that you don't pay what you don't have to pay and how to set things up so that you can make things that normally would not be deductible, deductible. Now, I don't like edgy CPAs that take really big risks with my freedom, okay? But I like freaking tough-ass CPAs that will figure out, here's how we do this, here's how we word it, here's how we structure it. And... So the the gal that does our taxes actually works with H&R Block. And there's an office manager there that we have a good relationship that we we started our relationship with over a decade ago named Richard, and he is also an attorney. Last year, I got a mail from the IRS saying that I owed them thousands of dollars of additional tax money. And even though she had done the taxes, he's the manager. He wrote the letter of response that basically said, These are duplicate 1099s from providers that paid through PayPal. It was all recorded on our books. It was all reported, and it was all on the 1099K from PayPal. This is duplicate. Here's the amounts. Here's where they're totaled. Here's where they show. Done. And we got a letter back from the IRS saying, okay, everything's fine. So this next one that we have today is on public lands and how that might work in a stateless society. Uh, this comes to me from Mike. Mike says, uh, Jack, how would public land work in a stateless society? Who would manage it, and how would you manage it to ensure that one person or group doesn't overhunt, overharvest the resources such as wild game, timber harvest, or even setting up camps on it and staking claim to certain areas? Details. I hunt on public lands almost exclusively. If I did not have public land, I would not have a place to hunt because getting free permission to hunt private land is proving difficult in Wisconsin. Our state does a great job of managing our game lands in my opinion and for the most part are able to enforce the rules and keep bad apples from taking unfair advantage of the resources available. I want to embrace the libertarian anarchist philosophies in all aspects of my life, but I'm finding it difficult to decide where I stand on the issue. People like Rand Paul have said that they would like to see many of the public and federal lands go back to states or sold to private parties. I, however, would not like to see that happen currently as many of the states, especially western states, have a long track record of selling off public lands to private logging entities which obviously would remove those pieces of wilderness from public access and they would likely be leased uh, to hunting outfitters who would charge top dollar to allow people to hunt there thanks jack for all you do i started listening on the show at the beginning of the year it's changed my life for the better mike in wisconsin okay so let's start out with a couple things here number one embracing anarchist or minarchist libertarian philosophy is not a statement that we would just be able to figure out how to do everything perfectly, and everything would be wonderful and special. Only statism promises to make everything perfect. Anarchy says there's always going to be problems, but there's better ways to work through those problems than to have the ability to use a gun and the threat of violence with the gun to force people to give up their property, their material, and their rights so that one group of people can say, you can't do that, or you must do that, or you have to do it this way, and then use that threat and coercion to make the other side engage. So none of the how-to's should have anything to do with whether or not you embrace the philosophy of anarchy, or voluntarism, or even minarchist libertarianism. If you just can't figure out yet, how would we do it without a minimal state, and you want to cling on to minarchism? I don't bash libertarians. I don't bash minarchists. I think that eventually you'll understand and come all the way, but I understand where you are because I used to be there. And I respect the hell out of you because you sure make a hell of a lot more sense than everybody else, I'm just saying. So, first of all, if we start looking at this as a true stateless society, it's actually easier than in a minimal state society where the government says anybody can do anything they want uh, with this land and we're going to sell it all off. If you have an anarchy where people have more of a tribalistic view that there's certain land that should be set aside and protected, and we have to manage this, and we come together with like basically a modern equivalent of tribal councils to figure this stuff out without anybody being forced to participate. But yes, this land here is sacred to all the tribes, right? Whether you want to take that as true like tribalism of old and hunter-gatherers or modern tribalism, because tribalism is anarchy. Tribalism is anarchy. If I can leave and go somewhere else, you can't coerce me to stay. And my voice actually counts. Then we are in an anarchy. We have rules, but we don't have sovereign rulers. Even a chief in a, in, a, in a true tribal society is not a sovereign. They don't control everything. They control maybe what the tribe does. But again, can I leave the tribe? All right. So it's a it's a it's a moral ethical decision. It's not everything will be super wonderful in nirvana if we do this. Okay. So now. This can be addressed through a couple of ways. Number one, throughout human history, there's been a concept that's referred to in the English language anyway as the commons. And this has existed both in uh, state societies and in stateless societies. And that is a simple concept that certain lands are for everybody, for everybody to use. And then there's certain agreements that we have that we don't screw them up, right? We don't jack stuff up. And if you go to a truly stateless society where there's no state to say, You can, but you can't. I think you would actually end up with more environmental restrictions and better access. I believe you would. I'm not saying it would be something you could flip a switch overnight and make happen. But again, when we get to these how-do-we solutions, we're saying this is a 100-year process or more. It's not an overnight process, so we don't have to worry about figuring out how to do it immediately. Okay. So the concept of the commons. Now let's explain where a politician like Rand Paul is on this. He's trying to gain traction with people in Western states. And if you look at how much land in some of our Western states is considered government land, which means no one can buy it, no one can build a house on it, no one can do jack shit with it, you'll start to understand why a lot of Western states agree with Rand Paul. Because when, you, when you, you're you in Wisconsin, well, I used to be in Pennsylvania, there's millions of acres of public hunting land and public land, but there's also billions and billions and billions of acres of land that's available for private use. But you go to some of these states and half or more of a state can be set aside as public land, but yet you can't access it or use it for certain things, and not all of them evil. So that's where he's coming from. Now, this is where it's important to understand as a modern anarchist the limits of what we can do right now. We exist In a state-based society, there is a government, there is a state, and unless we want to, I don't know, make a floating island and call it a nation in the ocean, we're going to have to deal with that. So our job is to begin deconstructing and figuring out how to replace the state, not to worry about creating a new state apparatus that changes how we do things now. So how might this type of situation occur? Well, what if everybody that really cared started getting together and financially supporting the purchase of land specifically for the purpose of setting it aside for recreational use, hunting, gathering, etc.? and you had to be a member of a tribe or a club or something like that to be able to have access to that and agree to those rules when you got access to that piece of land? And what if there were thousands of these and you could have as many club memberships as you want? How many can you afford? Only rich people could do that really really? because if you start looking at how much land costs and how much usage people really need of that land and you start dividing it up against enough people it's not that expensive because how does the government pay for it now with tax dollars we'd have to have income tax right most of our public lands our state game lands etc are not paid for with income tax they're paid for with usage fees they're paid for with usage fees license fees and usage fees And I'm going to tell you something about licenses. There's the old joke that license is what, you know, when government steals your rights and sells them back to you, it's called a license. It's still a usage fee. It's just they've created a monopoly over that usage fee. That's the problem. Not that there's a usage fee. So of all the things government does, setting aside public lands that are truly public lands that anybody really can access, and setting, you know, game harvest regulations and seasons with conservation in mind, one of the more benign things government does, until such time as they decide they want to take a piece of land that someone occupies and physically takes it away from them, most of this land has been set aside. No one lived there. So they they, they took this block of land and they set it aside as use as a commons. That's what it is. So this is actually one of the things government's doing that we don't want to destroy. We just want to change how it's done. This is a good thing. It's good. I wish there was more of it. And I think if we enabled people to create these types of areas, we would have more. Because I'm, I'm in Texas. I'm in a place where it's very much what you said. There's not a lot of public land available. And what is available is not close to me. And it's not very good land for hunting and gathering and things like that. It's not very practical for me to use. So I'm in a position where I'm paying a large cost for access. But if what if there were hundreds of thousands of competing commons uh, clubs. We want you to join. We want you to be part of it. We have to attract you with our benefits and how nice everything is. Now, I know what you st- started out with. Well, We're going to sell it to timber companies. We're going to sell it to mining companies, etc. Well, that's an issue. Do I have a good answer for how we protect the wilderness from those people right now without using the state? no. But it's also because the state is the only option right now. Um, And the state is taking money. So what is the cost and burden of land ownership? And and, and you have a situation. Imagine this. Imagine you said the way to make this work would be to buy 5,000 acres. And then we're going to lease 1,000 of those acres to 1,000 people. And those 1,000 people can each put a small dwelling on their acre, and we'll space them out. And then everything will be commons other than that. And then we can also sell access based on the owners voting how much of that to pay for everything. Stateless society. Easy. Easy. No property taxes. No interference. Nobody calling in a subdivision. Nobody requiring you to put a paved road in if that's not what you want. Try to do that in a lot of places around here. Try to do it off-grid. Try to do it in ways that are environmentally more sustainable and regenerative than what they want you to do. You have to have your, you know, you set any rules. You See, rules are not something that's not allowed in an anarchy. That group could say, okay, you have to have waste disposal. It has to be composting toilets or a lagoon or some sort of system to deal with waste. But it doesn't get pumped off to a sewage treatment plant, and it can't go in the creeks because that's where we get our trout from that group could do that. Now, if you had someone that was just raping the land, how many people would want to be part of what they're part of what they're doing without government protection? How sustainable is that practice? Without the government taking the land first to sell it to the timber company, how sustainable is this practice? I don't think it's very sustainable. I don't think it's very it's very good business. So I I think that we can find better ways, and that's often the case with anarchy as a solution. It's not that we already know what to do. It's there's ways we can begin that process of deconstructing government. And with that, I've kind of wrapped up today's show, but I do want to reinforce that. Anarchy is a moral decision about the deconstruction of the government apparatus and replacing it with something that gives us what we want. It's not about using government to make more government in a different form. And I think people get confused about that because that's all Rand Paul's really proposing. The government will sell this to private entities, but it's going to sell it to the private entities that have large amounts of money rather than perhaps making it available to individuals who want to do good things with it and selling it off in large blocks instead of setting aside a block and saying let's sell this off to different concerns to do good things. Which I think, again, I think you'd get more of that in Anarchy. But we'll let that dog take a break for a while. And I'm going to try not doing any more anarchist questions for a couple weeks just to uh, keep the variety up. It seems like we've had one or two every week for a long time now. Uh, but I need your help with that, guys. I need other questions, other subjects, so please get them to me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. Uh, make your point or your statement up front, and then give me your details following. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the TSP Business Directory. If you uh, want to do business with other members of our community, you can just go to tspbiz.com, and uh, you'll find great people there, like uh, today's uh, featured member, Zion Systems. Is a premier provider of 72-hour emergency kits. They offer a great uh, gear replacement guarantee that you can use the code uh, TSPC2016 for 5% discount. And let me tell you a little bit about that gear replacement guarantee. If you use any piece of gear in one of their kits in an actual emergency, they replace it free of charge. Pretty awesome, Zion Systems. Good guys. I actually have a jackpack over there that I haven't uh, done the work for the founder to get out to you guys, but he's built a 72-hour kit based on my recommendations. I think it's really, really cool. I'll try to get some more information to you about that this week. Next up, if you love this show and you like what we do, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Go to the t- the, to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to sign up. You can learn more about it there. But we'll get you so many discounts and more than pays for your memberships. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, and first responders like EMTs, par- paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount. Just email me with TSPC service discount and the subject line tell me about your service. And that's all we'll say about the members brigade today. Remember, I am now sharing some of these segments on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com and look up Survival Podcasts uh, YouTube channel to learn more about that. Uh, and find all the stuff I have there. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and consider sharing my shorter segments on YouTube with people that you don't think are ready for a whole um, a whole podcast yet. And remember, I did get out some products today. If you go to the website and click on the links for them and go to Amazon, you'll support the show, but you can always support the show at Amazon by doing less work than you normally would to shop at Amazon. Go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. When you shop on Amazon, do the exact same thing you always do, spend the exact same money you always do, and you can help out, support the show. TSPAZ.com is your way to do just that. Uh, now time for the end of the show song of the day. And this one is from one of my favorite people ever, sadly no longer with us, Warren Zivon. Um And he has a lot of great music. But this one I picked for today because this is a classic, classic uh, survivalist song. Lawyers, guns, and money. Uh, this is one of the, I think this is the only song I think ever that literally has this shit has hit the fan in it. The only one I know of. Uh, it's been around a long, long time. Uh, Warren was around as an icon of rock and roll for a long, long time. Um, if you don't know this song, I'm surprised. Some of his other music you probably have heard uh, would be including uh, the 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 uh, song uh, Werewolves of London. Uh, That was part of uh, the movie, The Color of Money, with uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Paul Newman in it. Uh, And maybe I'll play that for you sometime, too. That's a good song. Uh, But I picked this one today because the shit has hit the fan in Venezuela. It really has. No more beer. Think about beer being gone. Or if you're not a beer drinker, wine, or whatever does it for you. If you're an iced tea guy, no more iced tea. This shit has hit the fans and lawyers, guns, and money. The other reason is, of course, that happened in Venezuela. This song, uh, coming out the time that it did, I believe late 70s, mid 70s, uh, has quite a flair for the entire, you know, South American, Latin American, Cuban thing going on. A little bit of espionage mixed in. Good song, a fun song, and uh, a great guy that, I, as I said before, is no longer with us. And a guy that faced his death with um, real courage. Performed uh, right up to the end, it, knowing it was coming. And uh, just a guy with a great heart and music that, if you listen to it, really makes you think. This one's just fun, though. Lawyers, guns, and money. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.